ahead and start with a word of prayer and then we'll get started. We love you, Lord. Thank you so much for this time together in your word. Thank you that we can gather here uh, in a safe, warm building, Lord, that you've provided and uh, just be able to gather around your word. We just pray now, Lord, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would teach it to us. Lord, help us to learn. Help us to rightly divide the word of truth tonight, Lord, and uh, stay away from error. Stay away from um, what we think necessarily, Lord. We want to know the truth. So we're just going to trust you to teach us that tonight, Lord. So please guide our study, guide the discussion, all for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Psalm 10, we're going to do just a quick little review of verse 4, and then we'll move forward uh, in the study. We left off last week where it says, The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts, okay? So... Basically, this tells us that the wicked person has absolutely no consideration whatsoever as to what God wants in any given situation. And how sad is that? Um, He's only concerned with his own heart's desire, if you will. So we have to give thought to God, right? To not give thought to something is is simply not to care anything about it. Uh, But as believers, we have to give thought to him and his word. Psalm 119.11, a very popular verse, says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So for God's word to be hidden in our heart, then it has to be thought about extensively. It has to be meditated upon. In fact, Psalm 119 verse 15 tells us, I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. So meditation, contemplation, contemplation, rather, These are necessary in the life of a believer. In other words, we need to illuminate our mind with the Word of God, don't we? And I brought up this just a little bit last week, but this little book right here was written by a friend of mine. His name is Rory McGordy. And uh, it's called the Bible Memorization Pocket Guide. And you can find most of what's written in this book at truthmadeeasy.com. If you go to that website, you'll find this system that he came up with called Memread. And this is a memorization technique that he came up with to memorize scripture. Basically, you you read a scripture 10 times a day for four weeks, and you're going to get it memorized. That's the crux of it. And so this is, yes? What age group? Any age group. Yeah. Any, any age group. I'm telling you. And, and this, is, this is the real deal, okay? Both Rory and his wife, Sue, are scripture memorization, uh, just, I don't know, professionals, if you will. They've both memorized books of the Bible. Okay, so not, I don't know that these are necessarily available, but he told me that you can find it all on that website. And Rory McGordy is his name at truthmadeeasy.com. And he'll take you through the steps of Memread. Uh, guide to memorization of scripture and it, and it does a good job it really does it's a fantastic way to memorize scripture he talks about things like you know you memorize lyrics to songs you memorize things that you don't even think about people's names phone numbers etc etc and so he kind of uses that method in memorizing scripture and it works because again they've both memorized books of the bible and so that's very incredible but you're going to see starter verses you're going to see how and why to memorize scripture. He's going to give you some advanced memorization techniques. 
And so it's really good stuff. But the other thing that's cool, and one of the reasons why I put his website up on the whiteboard for a couple of weeks here is, is I want you guys to go there for another reason. He has a fantastic video series on apologetics. And so basically that's the defense of the Christian faith. If you want to know more about what you believe and why you believe it and learn how to defend your faith in Christ and the, the teachings of the Bible, go check out his apologetics series. It's short videos. Maybe most of them are between four and five minutes long. But he's going to take you through the process based on the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by Norman Geisler and Frank Turek. He's going to take you through a video series that's going to help you understand things like the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, the moral law argument. And basically that's this. The cosmological argument is an argument for beginnings. So in other words, if the universe had a beginning, then it must have had a beginner. Okay. The teleological argument is the argument for design. Look around this world that we live in, the universe that we live in. There's order. There's design, right? So if there's design, then there must have been a designer. And so the moral law argument is going to tell you things like, why is there right and wrong? Like there's certain things that we can all agree on, saved and unsaved, that this is right, this is wrong. Why? Well, that's the moral law argument. If there is right and wrong, if there is truth, then there must have been a truth giver or a law giver. So anyway, check that out. I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, it's really brief studies, but it's really well done. So that's truthmadeeasy.com. So back to verse 4, Psalm 10. <clears throat> the wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. So I wonder how often is God in your thoughts in the decision-making processes of life? We all make decisions every day, small and large. Is God there in that process? Is he a part of your thinking? I mean, I think too often believers in Christ, it can go like this. God, here's my plan. Here's my, my one-year plan. Here's my five-year. Here's my 10-year and then my retirement plan. And this is how I see it all working out. And what I'm going to need you to do is bless that. <laughs> right? We kind of think wrongly about that because the Bible tells us in James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17 specifically, come now. You who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such, such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it's sin. So in other words, as believers, we know better, don't we? We know to do good. And we know how to know how to do good, right? That's get in the book. Get in the Word of God. Read it. Think about what it says. Meditate on it. Contemplate it. Think about how it applies to your life and then work it down into your heart and live out that truth so that you might not sin against God. That's the process we go through as believers in getting God's word into our life to where it actually means something, to where it's not just a head full of knowledge, but it actually makes a difference in how we live. Verse 5, his ways are always prospering. Still talking about the wicked. Your judgments are far above, out of his sight. As for all his enemies, he sneers at them. Okay, so his ways are always prospering. Whose ways are always prospering? 
yeah, in context here, it's the wicked person, right? His ways always prosper, or at least so he thinks. We, you've heard the question, why do bad things happen to good people? That's, that's a misguided question, right? Uh, no one is righteous, no, not one. We have a misunderstanding of what good means. But do you ever hear someone ask, why do good things happen to bad people? That's the opposite of that. Why does it seem like the wicked always prosper? Are they getting away with things? I mean, they're living in a way that does not please God, yet they prosper. And so, yeah. The New Testament, when Jesus was talking to um, the multitude and just saying, like, the different parables, how he has received his reward Mm. already. Right. So, I mean, you look at the wicked who are living today's, you know, and they're being blessed as you would mm-hmm. maybe view it but they're receiving a reward now and then hell will yeah. be in eternal torment yeah one of the I believe it's in Psalm 17 where we read um, the psalmist talking about you know they they get married they have children they hand their inheritance down to their kids all good things right but, but to your point that's all they get because then he says in the next line uh, but I will be satisfied when I awake in your presence. And so a big difference. You know, the, the rewards of this life do not compare to the rewards of the believer in heaven. And so it's you're right. It's the perspective. It, it may seem like they're prospering, but it's a temporal prosper, right? Um, and, and not only that, when people are not having absolutely any thoughts of God whatsoever, they're not going to be thinking clearly. They think, oh, your judgments, they're far off, they're out of sight here in verse 5. But is that true? No, not at all. I mean, the Lord, according to Psalm 9, verse 16, is known by the judgments he executes. So it's not that the, the Lord is far off and out of sight. It's just that they don't understand anything about the Lord because they never think about him. The Lord is no more distant from the boasting of the wicked than he is from the suffering of the believer. He's not distant. Nothing is out of his sight. Psalm 5 5 says, The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. And Psalm 9, verse 19 says, Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged in your sight. And David said again in Psalm 51 4, Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil where? In your sight. So uh, we can be sure that no sin, whether it's committed by the wicked or the saint, is out of God's sight, not, not by any stretch of the imagination. goes on to say in verse 5, As for all his enemies, he sneers at them. So the wicked sneers at his enemies. Uh, you know, the wicked person's lack of respect for God, well, that's going to lead to a lack of respect for his enemy, for sure. He has no regard for either one at all. But... Who, in fact, is the number one enemy of the wicked? Who's the number one enemy of the wicked? God, yeah, right? God. James 4, 4 says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So the wicked, they sneer at God and they smile at the world, so to speak, Um, But I think they should be careful because rebellion against God, it hardens the heart 
and it creates sort of a false sense of security uh, in the life of a person. So be careful with that one. Verse 6, he has said in his heart, still continuing to talk about the wicked, I shall not be moved. I shall never be in adversity. (laughs) I think first off here, it can be a huge problem when we begin to speak from the heart. (laughs) That can be a mess, right? Have you ever heard somebody speak from the heart? (laughs) I mean... Okay, yeah. (laughs) I mean, it might even be well-intended, okay? But it's not always true. Speaking from the heart does not mean you're speaking truth. And we've got to be able to, as believers, learn how to speak the truth in love, according to Ephesians 4.15. Because the truth is never wrong. The heart is most often wrong, but the, the truth never is. Here's what love is, according to the Bible, 1 Corinthians 13. Verses 4 through 8, love's patient. It's kind, does not envy, it does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. We see some of that in this psalm. It does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in sin. Rejoices only in truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never fails. However, as we see in the psalms again, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. You see how wrong the heart can be? Man, we can blow it when we start speaking from the heart, when we start following our heart. Um, That's foolish. That's the foolish way of doing things. Like in that example there too, that's a heart without Jesus. Right. Because I mean, you look at with Jesus in our lives, he's renewing our mind as well as softening our hearts. So our Mm -hmm. hearts also change when we have very true yeah very true but it can still be deceptive you know our heart can fool us Uh, that's why we use this book as our guide we have the word of God that keeps us on track if I were to follow my heart there's no telling where I would be Um, but if I follow the word of God there's a really really good chance I'm going to be in the middle of God's will And so that's where I want to be. I don't want to follow my heart and let it lead me. I want to, in fact, lead my heart by studying scriptures and getting that down into my heart so that we see that change that you're talking about there in the life of a believer. But, yes. In light of that, I wonder, thinking about how we often say, invite Jesus into your heart. I've often wondered and almost wished that that was not the word that was used, not necessarily because of what you're saying. I haven't really Yeah. To people, when we say heart, that we have to speak heart, rather than maybe into our life, into our will. Yeah, you're kind of saying the same thing. I mean, in Galatians, we do see, you know, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, "Abba, Father," and so that's the idea there, the, the, the person, the soul. You know, it's kind of what that is indicating. So, is it wrong to say? Ask Jesus in your heart or Jesus is in my heart. I don't think that's necessarily wrong uh, because we do have biblical precedent that says that's where God sends the spirit of his son into our hearts. And so, again, as long as we understand that it's not the physical beating muscle 
that it's our soul, yeah. our spirit. Distinguishing between that, between heart and what you're saying about it being like the flesh. Like the flesh, correct, yeah, yeah. So we do have to distinguish, so right? We can only distinguish that through the word of God. Amen. You're right. Yeah, and so that's the divider. That's the, the determiner, right, uh, between the flesh and the spirit. We want to follow the word of God to, in order to discern that. Because our hearts, our flesh, would be another way to say that here, um, they can say a lot of things, but not all of them are true, okay? And, and, again, not all of that is loving as well. So don't trust your heart. Don't trust your flesh. In other words, trust the word of God. Um, but the wicked person continues to boast here in verse 6. He says, I shall not be moved. I shall never be in adversity. Um, man, there's some boasting going on here, isn't there? How do you know that? Yeah, right. See, this is short-sighted. And, you know, a short-sighted view of God leads to a very skewed view of reality. You actually think you're getting away with things. And the truth is, is that your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they were all written, the days fashioned for me when as yet none of them were made. Psalm 139.16. So no one is going to live... I mean, this guy's... The wicked person here is saying, I'm not going to be moved. I'm never going to have adversity, etc. But the truth is, no one's going to live one day beyond the last day that has been fashioned for them, nor die one day before that. God knows the end from the beginning, according to Isaiah 46.10. But the arrogance of the wicked here has blinded them into thinking that they are the ones that are in control. When in fact... They will be moved. They're boasting about not being able to be moved. In fact, they will be moved. And we talked about this when we were in Psalm 9. Verse 17 of Psalm 9 says that they're going to be turned into hell. So that's, to me, considered adversity. That's being moved by God somewhere um, that they don't want to go. And in fact, uh, they're going to experience unparalleled adversity for time and eternity. So the boasting is, is just that. It's boasting. It's not truth. Verse 7. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is trouble and iniquity. So his mouth is full of cursing and deceit and oppression. Um, the wicked person can, with his mouth, curse, deceive, oppress, etc., now, we've all heard about, we've heard potty mouths, right? The cursing thing we get. Uh, the guy who can't complete a sentence without using foul language, we've all seen those people. They curse. And we've all probably been around people who are deceptive with their speech. They can use words that deceive. Um, but what about those who oppress with their mouth? What about those people? Have you been around that person? It's called verbal abuse. Wicked people curse God, they lie to people and abuse them with their words. So we've got to be careful of folks like this. And, and I don't think we need to feel obligated to remain in an abusive situation. Not at all. Now, in the context of marriage, I'm not saying run out and get divorced. I, you know, I'm not saying that at all. But I mean, you don't have to suffer continual abuse from an unbeliever or someone that's continuing to verbally oppress you and abuse you. You need to Get somewhere safe, right? Get the help that you need. And just a side note here, one of the ways that I can say that, or one of the reasons I think that I can say that, is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. So that's not oppression at all. 
There's liberty where the Spirit of the Lord is. Romans 8, 15 also says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption to whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And Romans 8, 21 says, Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into glorious liberty of the children of God. So what do we learn from all of this? Well, that sin creates bondage. That's what sin does. But Christ brings freedom. He gives us liberty. And the freedom that's assumed here by the wicked person, well, frankly, it's imagined. It's an imagined type freedom. And in reality, what they're in is bondage. You know all the, you've probably met people who have told you, I don't want to become a Christian or I don't want to go to church or whatever. I don't want to follow Christ because it's restricting. I don't want to give up my freedom. Well, they're the ones that are in bondage and they just don't realize that. They're in bondage to sin. The freedom is over here in Christ. And whom the Son sets free, he's free indeed, the Bible says. Wouldn't you rather be free from that bondage of sin and be in Christ? Of course, yeah. So it's a skewed view of freedom here from the wicked person. Under his tongue is trouble and iniquity. So both trouble and sin find their home under the tongue of the wicked. So this is kind of reminding me of like our Sunday For Bible sure. verse. Yes. Do you have that memorized yet? Yeah. I do not. I'm there. <laughs> You're awesome. It's been 24 hours. It's the first, the first time I've been getting there. She's so good. I know. She is amazing. Yeah. She does a fantastic job yeah. with scripture memory. But just think about this. With one little flick of their tongue, they can blast iniquity all over the place, right? Under his tongue is trouble and iniquity. James chapter 3, verse 6 says, And the tongue is a fire. A world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among its, its members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. And so part of the bondage that we see here of the wicked is having a tongue that is, in fact, set on fire by hell. Uh, that's no freedom at all. Verse 8. He sits in the lurking places of the villages, in the secret places, he murders the innocent. His eyes are secretly fixed on the helpless. And uh, I don't know, this is just standard practice, it seems like to me, for the wicked. Um, the wicked have to lurk. You know, it's almost as if he's in the shadows. You know, but the believer in Jesus Christ is commanded to walk in the light. 1 John 1, 7. Completely different than lurking. It's no different for Israel. Even back in the Old Testament, we read in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 5, it says, O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. So as believers, as followers of Christ, we're in the light, and the wicked are in lurking places. I think about, too, like what you were saying um, Sunday about how being more mature in Christ also gives you the ability to be more gracious to, who, to those who are not believers. Mm -hmm. I, I look at people like that are in my life who haven't been saved and a lot of the stuff that they do I try and bring to their attention such as verbal abuse and such as that they don't realize what they're doing like they yeah. don't have the conviction so it's not like they're intentionally doing it but it's that unconscious yeah. sin nature that is coming out of them. 
Right, yeah. And, and like, you know, reading that he sits lurking in the places of the mm-hmm. villages and all of that stuff. Like, you, you read that and you think that they're doing it with a purpose, but there are some people that do it unknowingly. Could be, yeah. Blinded by the God of this age, right? The God of this world, the prince of the power of the air. And, and so, if you think about sin, it likes to keep things quiet on the down low, right? In the secret. It doesn't want anything out there in the light where Christians should walk. So we should, as believers, obviously walk in the light where everything is visible. You can see it with nothing to hide. There's no lurking in the life of a believer. There's nothing to hide. At least there shouldn't be, right? He says in the secret places, he murders the innocent. Wow. The wicked have always, it seems to me, always preyed on the innocent. I mean, some things never change. You know, I think again about planned parenthood here. They like to say that they provide health care for women. All right? Well, I would argue whose health is actually being cared for. Okay? I mean, what life has actually improved, made better, enhanced, or cared for when an innocent baby is murdered in the womb? But under the guise of health care, they can provide a secret place to murder the innocent. Some things never change. The heart of the wicked is the same today as it was then. It says, his eyes are secretly fixed on the helpless. Again, the wicked, it just seems to me like they're a bunch of bullies, right? They're the big bullies on the playground of life. I mean, the helpless are their victims here. The wicked oppress them in verse 7 to keep them vulnerable and dependent. And then what happens in verse 8? They murder them. I mean, we've seen this in recent history too, by the way. Uh, you'll, you'll recognize some of these names. Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Mao Zedong. These were bad individuals. They were wicked people. Hitler had 11 million Jews killed during the Holocaust in an attempt to exterminate an entire race of people in the 40s. Stalin, he had north of 8 million probably or so uh, starved to death due to a forced famine in his attempt to rid the country of peasants in the Soviet Union in the 30s. And then Mao Zedong comes along and he starves 30 million people killed trying to follow the model of Stalin in the 40s. And so the wicked heart is the same. It kills. It murders. It's it's terrible. There's oppression going on right now like in China where there's the one child rule. Right. leaving their babies at marketplaces just to die because they couldn't have children or if they had a girl first they would you know find really inhumane ways to rid themselves of the baby in order to i i mean it's just kind of disgusting yeah it is it is but that's still happening nowadays for sure there's no doubt the model of the wicked has not changed i mean the enemy's plans are the same his eyes are secretly fixed on the helpless again bullies Verse 9, he lies in wait, excuse me, secretly as a lion in his den. He lies in wait to catch the poor. He catches the poor when he draws them into his net. 
so here it seems like the wicked tend to, I don't know, act on instinct, kind of like animals. <laughs> I mean, they don't worry about controlling any emotions or actions or, you know, anything like that. I mean, they don't employ discipline, for example. They just let their emotions run wild, unrestrained. But, but look here, it's not unplanned. I mean, they plot and they scheme. We saw that back in verse 2. He lies in wait to catch the poor. Again, the least among us is their prey. The vulnerable are the prey of, of the wicked. It says he catches the poor when he draws them into his net. So don't be fooled about this. Don't fall for the traps that are set by the wicked. Um, and we know that they're most likely going to be in the dark lurky places right or in dens where there's no light i mean we kind of know where the traps are going to be set we know how they operate based on scripture they're sneaky they're in the secret they're lurking etc etc you spend much time in those places you're probably going to get in one of those traps so be wise use discernment don't give opportunity for sin in your life and that that happens a lot of times i've over the years and I think especially more so when I was a youth pastor, would talk to youth about, they would wonder, where's the sin? Is this a sin or is that a sin? Is this a sin? Is that not a sin? And I said, you know, guys, you're worrying too much about where the sin line is. Okay? If you get too close to that thing, eventually you're going to trip and fall over it. Right? So why not walk over here in the light where it's a no-doubter that, that it's not sin? Don't give opportunity for sin in your life. It's not a matter of... If you're worried about how close can I get to the sin line without tripping over it, you're worried about the wrong thing. We need to be worried about what gives God the most glory in our life. That's the difference. Rather than what can I get away with and still not sin? No. What gives God the most glory? Walk way over here in the light. And so be wise. Use discernment. Don't give opportunity for sin. Uh, the less time that you spend in the viper's den, for example, the less likely you are to be snake bit. There's no doubt about that. The more of God's word that you know, the easier it's going to be for you to recognize the schemes of the enemy, to recognize sin, all of those things in your life. Verse 10, so he crouches, he lies low, that the helpless may fall by his strength. Okay, so he crouches and he lies low. This is what God said would happen to Cain. Remember that? If he sinned in his anger, in his anger rather, you remember that Genesis chapter four? I'll read part of it for you. Verses six and seven. It says, so the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, listen to this. Sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Interesting. Sin's desire is for us. It's crouching. It's lying at the door. It's waiting. It's ready to pounce. But God said to Cain, you should rule over that. So we should rule over that. Wicked people do not resist the temptation to sin. Okay? We should. Again, they allow sin to just run wild in their life, almost instinctually, instinctually like an animal, if you will. But we're not like that. We have the Spirit of God in us. We, the Bible tells us clearly, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So we've got to employ some discipline in our life. We understand that sin 
That's how close it is. It's lying at the door. It's crouching. It's ready to pounce. So don't give opportunity for it in your life. Verse 10 continues, that the helpless may fall by his strength. So today the helpless fall by the strength of the wicked, but that proud strength of the wicked is not going to stand on the day of judgment. Psalm 1.5 told us, Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. So the helpless, they fall to the wicked today. That's the world we live in. But the wicked will ultimately fall in judgment on that day. And so they're, they're living for today in no fear whatsoever of the consequences or the retribution or anything like that. But it's coming. And it's certain. And there's no doubt about that. Verse 11. He has said in his heart, God has forgotten. He hides his face. He will never see. You see again more boasting, uh, more lack of understanding reality no fear of God no thoughts of God he said in his heart God's forgotten so again the wicked mistakenly trust their heart here Isaiah 64 9 says do not be furious O Lord nor remember iniquity forever indeed please look we're all your people and Jeremiah 31 34 says in speaking of the new covenant that's coming in Jesus Christ, it says, No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. However, God has not forgotten the sins of the wicked, like the wicked claims that he has here in this verse, here in verse 11. Let's flip over to, uh, if you have your Bibles, let's flip over to Psalm 50 and read a passage of Scripture there. Let's read verses 16 through 22. Psalm chapter 50, starting in verse 16, I'll read down through verse 22. But to the wicked, God says... What right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth, seeing you hate instruction and cast my words behind you? When you saw a thief, you consented with him and have been a partaker with adulterers. You give your mouth to evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done. And I kept silent. You thought I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. Now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver. Does that sound like God forgets the sins of the wicked? <laughs> Not in the least, right? I mean, the heart of the wicked says that he hides his face here in verse 11. The wicked thinks that God hides his face from their sin. And in reality, he hides his face from their prayers. Let's flip over to uh, Psalm, I'm sorry, Isaiah 59. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2. The wicked thinks he hides, that God hides his face from their sin, but he actually hides his face from their prayers. Isaiah 59, Verse 2 says, But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from
from you so that he will not hear. Verse 2, Isaiah 59, 2. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Interesting. The heart of the wicked says that he's never going to see because the wicked operate in secret, right? They lurk in order to hide their sin and take advantage of the helpless and the poor, etc. But nothing is done in secret with God. That's for sure. Daniel chapter 2 verse 22 says that he reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. So God is in the light, but that doesn't mean he doesn't know what's in the darkness. Of course he does. Psalm 44:21 says, "Would not God search this out for he knows the secrets of the heart." So you see how mistaken the wicked are in their in their thought process. The wicked here are greatly mistaken. They get things most usually backwards because no sin in fact goes unseen by God at all. Verse 12. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the humble. So a little shift here in the psalm. Uh, we see this uh, in several. But now David begins to call upon the Lord based on what he's been talking about in the psalm this far about the wicked. Because of that, God, arise, arise, O Lord. Lift up your hand. Uh, just like in Psalm 919, he begins to call for action from God here. And I think it's important to note that Anytime we see this, we need to remember that the author of the Psalms never ask to avenge themselves. They never ask or seek to take vengeance on their own. He always calls for God to administer the justice, and that's because they know that God judges rightly, Psalm 9, verse 8. If we were to judge, we would, we would never judge rightly. We would get it wrong. Uh, he says, do not forget the humble. This continues the thought from Psalm 9, 12, in my opinion, which says, when he avenges blood, he remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. So don't forget the humble, Lord. The psalmist is not necessarily asking a question here, is he? He's restating a truth. He knows that God remembers them. He, he's not going to forget them. He's simply seeking that justice that's been promised by God. Verse 13. Why do the wicked renounce God? He has said in his heart, you will not require an account. So why do they renounce God? I mean, the word for renounce here, I don't know if you are familiar with the actual meaning, but it, it, it's worse than that. It means to despise. So why do the wicked despise God? Jesus told us why the wicked despised him. He told us that in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. He said, No one can serve two masters, for either, either he will hate the one and love the other, or else be loyal to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and mammon, or riches and wealth. So that's why. He goes on to say in verse 13, he has said in his heart, you will not require an account. So again, foolishness. The wicked want to live by their lustful instincts um, while believing that there's, there's just no penalty for that the sin it's some people would even consider this to be universalism right i mean hell's not real and there's no consequences for our sin etc etc all roads lead to heaven and so on that's a modern day view of this idea 
of what we're seeing from the wicked person, of them not fearing an account. They don't believe that a reckoning is coming. Um, it's, it's, it's the everybody gets a trophy, everybody wins idea, right? And ultimately, everybody ends up in heaven, no matter what. Um, but I'm here to tell you, hell is real, and it's a very scary place. Um, I'm, I can see why people would not want to believe in it, right? Um, yeah, you know, if I say something long enough, I'll begin to believe it. You know, if I just say that he was a good God, he couldn't possibly send people to hell. It seems harsh, and um, but but that's misguided. You know, a very popular pastor, Rob Bell, um, wrote the book Love Wins, and that's pretty much all about his idea of there not being a hell. He was at one time a so-called Bible preacher, taught from the Word of God, and then became to become enlightened or whatever and started not believing in hell and things like that and um you know hell's a hell's a very tough subject but it's a very real thing and we see it all over scripture and so uh, we've got to be careful that we don't miss the mark here some people these days think of god as a type of santa claus yeah i mean it used to be okay he knows who you know he knows who's bad and nice. And if you were bad, you got coal or switches or something. Nowadays, no matter what, everybody gets something and they sort of view God as a Santa Claus who's in a rocking chair and knocks his Everybody was just a good boy today. Yeah. Yeah, and the problem is, is that... Kids. Yeah. The problem is that we have made God into our own image instead of being made in him, His image. We have developed this idea of God that comes from our own image of what we want Him to be. And we need to be careful to understand that it doesn't matter what I think. It only, the only thing that matters is what's true. Yeah. And so we got to find the truth from the Word of God. It doesn't matter what I think. Um, if heaven exists, then so does hell. God created them both. Um, heaven He created for His own dwelling place and for those who by faith have trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation. Hell, he actually created for the devil and his angels. That's why it was created according to Matthew 25, 41. But all those who choose to reject Jesus as Savior will in fact give account one day for their own sin in that very place called hell. And that's a hard truth. Uh, but it is true. And so to talk a little bit about hell here, and um, we'll wrap up here before long, but there are three main words that we see in the New Testament that are used for hell. When we, when we see the word hell, it's usually one of these three words. Um, Hades is one. Gehenna is another. And Tartaru is the third. We see all three words in the New Testament. And something that we should remember here is that when you read about the lake of fire in the New Testament, that's not hell. Okay, that's the lake of fire. It's different, and you'll read about that in Revelation 20, verse 14. The people who are in hell will eventually be cast into the lake of fire. So two different places. That's after Jesus the Yeah, that's, that's the final, after judgment, the great white throne judgment, uh, the final place of fire, I guess you could say. I would say that I don't know if it's worse or not. It's 
probably very similar, except for that's final. Is hell like then their purgatory? Yeah, it's not necessarily purgatory, though, because it's a literal hell. Okay, we see that in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Um, that's where the word Hades is used, for example, in Luke 16, 24 through 26, that story of the rich man and Lazarus. There was burning there. There was separation there. There was loneliness. There was a conviction of memory. There was thirst. There was stench. Okay, all in that story. And there was also a great gulf that was fixed. So you couldn't get out. Okay, so but it was final in the sense that those people are going to end up in the lake of fire, but it's temporary in that in the sense that it wasn't the lake of fire, the eternal place for those who will, you know, forever be apart from Christ. So that's one example of Hades. Another example of hell in the New Testament is that word I mentioned, Tartaru. We see that in Second Peter chapter two, verse twenty-four. We see it again in Jude six. And that's the place where God sent the angels who sinned to be reserved for judgment. So that was kind of their temporary hell, if you will, before being cast into the lake of fire. And that likely refers to when the angels, you'll remember in the Old Testament, they came and married the daughters of the sons of men in Genesis 6, verses 1 through 7, where you get the word Nephilim from, those giants. Uh, and so that's where they are. And then you see the word Gehenna in the New Testament that's also used for hell. This is the most popular one, I believe. It's used 12 times in the New Testament, and it was used 11 times by Jesus himself. 11 times he used that word Gehenna. And it's probably, most uh, scholars would agree, that it's in reference to the Valley of Hinnom, where King Ahaz of Israel, he participated in worshiping the false gods of Moloch there. And in an attempt to, to please this false god or false gods, Ahaz engaged in human sacrifice there and actually sacrificed his own children in, in fire, Second Chronicles 28, verses 1 through 4. So it's compared to that. Gehenna is compared to that. The valley eventually became sort of a dumping ground for the city of Jerusalem during the time of Jesus. It was used to burn garbage in that area. And so nasty a place where former child sacrifice took place. It was now a garbage dump. Uh, that's Gehenna. And so not, not a place you want to be. John Corson said this. He said the place of Gehenna was where humans were sacrificed, dead bodies were burned, and human waste was dumped. The place was always on fire, and the stench was terrible. No one would want to spend five minutes there, much less all of eternity. And so pretty strong language when you see the word Gehenna used. Shane, mm -hmm. would you spell the word that starts with T, please? T-A-R, T-A-R-O-O, -O, Tartaru. And where does the word Sheol come in? Old Sheol. Testament. Yeah, that's, that's more of a Hebrew term than a Greek term. Okay. So you'll see that in the Old Testament pop up. So, okay. And a lot of times that, that simply would mean grave or place of the dead so but yeah that that's going to be more of the hebrew term we see in the old testament now of course jesus spoke more about hell than he did of heaven i mean that's just another truth that we find in scripture so we need to make no mistake about it that hell is real so next time you may think you're getting the warm fuzzies or you hear a preacher talking about they're not actually being a hell or God's too good for that. How could he ever do that? 
don't believe it. It's not biblical. Hell is real, and uh, it's not some place that you want to spend eternity. And Jesus spoke more about that than he did heaven. Yes. I don't understand how they could go about justifying that without scripture. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, literally, you would have to rip pages out of Scripture in order to build a doctrine around that. And so, yeah, either you don't know it or you just deny it. Well, he's just. He's just. And, and of course, we get a, a backwards mindset of what love is. We, we think love is just a feeling. It's everything goes kind of a thing. But, but love, biblically, you know, it says it doesn't rejoice in sin. So that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love does not rejoice in iniquity. And so biblical love um, is also just as well. And, and God is both just and love as well. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. It comes from people who decide to set their own standards of what's right and wrong, right, rather than biblical standards for that. Any other thoughts on that before we wrap up? Yes. (laughs) We may have to circle up a little tighter next week or something. All right, well, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll break up into our prayer groups. And so we'll break up into groups of somewhere between three and four, uh, five maybe, and uh, spend some time before the Lord tonight and ask each other, how can I pray for you? And uh, then we'll just stick around and have some good fellowship as long as you want to. Father, we're grateful for your word tonight. Thank you for it. Lord, thank you for preserving it all throughout history, Lord, so that we can know the truth. We don't have to guess we don't have to follow our hearts we can have the very truth of god right in front of us and so we can know right and wrong we can discern what's good and what's bad and we can know how to live and uh, we can know evil from good and good from evil and 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 things that we need to just guide us through our life in a way that pleases you so thank you for giving us that thank you for giving us your word thank you for giving us your holy spirit that does and guide, uh, guide us into all truth comforts us and helps us understand and lord so would you please just uh, allow your word to sink into our heart the things that we've heard and, and discussed tonight the truth of it help us lord to get that into our heart that we might not sin against you it's in jesus name that we ask this amen, amen.